Will you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus Christ, please be our guest, our morning joy, and our evening rest. And with this weekly word in part, your grace and peace into our hearts. We ask and pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I think this is true no matter what level of football you might have played or might have coached or might have watched. I've known it to be true, uh, watching youth sports with my children, coaching them for a decade, and now uh, watching my older sons play football for Frankenmuth. When an official throws a flag, there's usually a reaction. Sometimes it's cheers, sometimes it's jeers, depending on who you're rooting for, but also depending on the nature of the penalty. I was at the football game for the junior varsity team of Frankenmuth on Thursday night, and I was doing the chain game, uh, marking the first downs and whatnot. And as I was doing that, I noticed a play unfold. And our guys came behind one of the opposing team, uh, and they grabbed his jersey from the back and yanked him back to tackle him. Now, it looks awful. It looks horrible. And it probably doesn't feel that good either but it's a legal play. You can pull on the jersey to bring a player down in football. Well, the officials saw it like I did, and no flag was thrown. But the coaches on the sideline of the opposing team saw that player reach into that shoulder pad of that player and bring them back. And that is illegal. And if that were the case, the flag should have been thrown. And that move is called a horse collar. And so the coaches on the sideline and some of the, the players in the, in the stands on the opposing side started yelling, horse collar, horse collar. Well, that didn't make them happy. And of course, that also colored their view of the officials for the rest of that half. And then everything balanced out in the second half. And then Frankenmuth won 42 to zero, just like God intended. <laughs> And all was well with the world. <laughs> we throw a flag when there's been something wrong. When we see a penalty, we throw a flag when something's not right. We throw a flag when something is unjust. Amos, the author of our Old Testament reading that Mrs. Mueller read earlier. Amos is a prophet in the southern kingdom that's been called by God to preach in the northern kingdom. Now, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom at this time in Israel's history are all a part of God's family, all a part of the children of Israel, and uh, they have been separated over the years because of some good kings and bad kings and, and God intervening and causing some separation because not all those kings followed the word and will of the Lord. So you have this northern kingdom of Israel and this southern kingdom of Israel. Amos is from the south. He's going to preach in the north. And what he's going to preach is interesting. He's going to be preaching a lot about Yahweh, the Old Testament name for the Lord. The Lord God, the true God, the triune God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the same God that we worship and serve today. And not only is he talking about God being the God of the Israelites, the God of his people, but being the God of all people and the entire universe. In fact, Amos, 86 times in nine chapters, describes the character of the Lord God. And this character of God will also cause him to be upset with the Israelites, to be upset with his people. 
and the Lord God will throw a flag. Now, when God throws the flag, it's different than an official on a football field. When God throws the flag, there are things like fires, earthquakes, locusts, drought, famine, disease, and even an army sent in, bent on annihilating the northern kingdom because of their wayward ways. And they're not just being disobedient. They're totally disregarding the laws of the Lord, but also the values of the Lord. We'll see what those are in just a moment. This book of Amos is probably the earliest and most complete collection of prophetic oracles and visions and sermons of the Old Testament. And in his preaching, Amos wants God's people in the northern kingdom to do as God commands. And what is God commanding them to do? Well, it's not that hard. He says, I want them to feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, provide shelter for the homeless, offer clothes to those who don't have any, and look after the sick. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable list of requests, does it? Having been in the divine counsel of Yahweh, Amos knew that the Lord had sided with those people who had been forgotten, neglected, perhaps even oppressed or mistreated. Certainly the poor and needy, barren women, rescued slaves, and he is encouraging his people to look after those people and to give them food and drink and clothing and shelter and to care for him. And God's one warning was this, do not take advantage of them. Enter in Amos chapter eight, the Old Testament reading for this morning. What do the Israelites do? <sighs> they trample on the needs of the needy. They do away with the poor of the land. They grow impatient with festivals and the things of God because they want to get back to work, back to their jobs so that they can make more money. They focus on the end of the Sabbath day instead of its purpose, which is rest and worship, so that they can start working again to make more money. They skimp on measures that they're supposed to give out to their customers. They price gouge and cheat customers with dishonest scales. They purchase the poor and the needy with their finances, dangling in front of them what they need to support their lives and their families so that they can exploit them in cheap labor. They even try to make money on the leftover sweepings from the wheat harvest, the leftover chaff, which the Lord had instructed God's people time and time again was to be left for those in need. In fact, the book of Amos goes on to report that those who were being denied justice were not just the widows or orphans or the poor, but also regular folks, working folks, farmers and workers in the field. They were in danger of losing what property they had, and some of them were being sexually abused, taken advantage of financially, wronged judicially in the court, and even mistreated spiritually. And the purpose of Amos's advocacy of the poor is not to place the poor on a pedestal and, and perhaps even make you feel sorry for them. It's not necessarily that. Instead, it's to point out to Israel's leaders that what they're doing is not right, that something is wrong there. God is throwing a flag on the northern kingdom here, and they're going to have to face judgment because of their mistreatment 
of these people. When the Lord sees how his people have been treated and disenfranchised, sometimes he throws the flag. Because it's not right, it's not fair, and in fact, it is unjust. The problem with being on the receiving end of all this mistreatment is not only that does it feel bad, and other people are controlling you and your life, and you're being taken advantage of, that's bad enough. The problem becomes disillusionment. Disillusionment with people, disillusionment with God's people, disillusionment with those who placed in an authority over us, disillusionment with those who have means or perhaps have power. And that can be a bit of a problem. Let me share a story with you from my childhood that illustrates this whole idea of disillusionment in the face of injustice. When I was eight years old, I was living with my family in Bradenton, Florida. My father was a pastor in training. He was a vicar like Vicar Adam Tanney here with us. Well, my father was a vicar down at Hope Lutheran Church in Bradenton, Florida. I was living there with my mom and my dad and my older brother, Eric. He was three years older than I was. I was eight years old in second grade in Mrs. Stevenson's class in Pine Elementary School there. And usually I was a very prompt and punctual student. I was very attentive in class. I tried my best to get good grades. I followed directions and I had a pleasant disposition. I was a pretty happy kid most of the time. But until this one week, when all this confluence of events happened, which would rock my little worldview. And here was my worldview at the time. At age eight, about grade two, I believed that pastors did not sin. And because my father was studying to become a pastor, therefore my father did not sin. I also believed that... Uh, Teachers were perfect and never made mistakes. Isn't that right, Mr. Palm Rider? And I also believe that life was the way it should be instead of the way it actually was. And that all these things should work together, right? Parents were right. Teachers were right. Certainly pastors were right. And so what happened was this. One lunchtime, I'm choking down my peas on my lunch tray and the teacher slash monitor says to me, Brad, you can't go to recess until you finish all your peas. Woe is me. And now I see out of the corner of my eye, other kids being released by another lunch monitor who had not eaten all of their peas. And it wasn't right. It wasn't fair. It wasn't just. But I couldn't handle it. <laughs> Add to that, at home, the next day, I was falsely accused for something my older brother Eric had done, and I was disciplined for it. Add that to the mix. And then, as if that were not a muff, the next day, the straw that broke the camel's back was this. I'm in class again. We're getting up to line up to go outside for recess, and I can't wait, and this is great. But three students, three fellow classmates, three rambunctious little <laughs> second grade boys were messing around and being disruptive and not following directions. Well, as the teacher turns around to see what's happening, the three miscreants were nowhere in sight. And who's left standing there? Little Bradley. Mrs. Stevenson wrote my name on the board. I had to stay in for recess, and that was it. It wasn't right, it wasn't fair, it wasn't just. And so I started to shut down. 
I stopped talking. I stopped being polite and pleasant. I stopped being positive. Um, I was not myself. The next week, there was a parent-teacher conference. Mrs. Stevenson asked Mr. and Mrs. Hubbard, hey, I've noticed Brad's a little different. Is there anything wrong with happening at home? And Mr. and Mrs. Hubbard said of Mrs. Stevenson, we noticed Brad's different. Is there anything wrong happening at school? And that night, my family asked me questions and examined me. And in that inquisition, I spilled all of the information that I had and told them about these three separate incidences that all occurred that were not right, not fair, and unjust, according to my little heart and mind. Interesting how injustice impacts our hearts and minds and could lead to disillusionment. Friends, if those who belong to God do not treat each other well, or ignore or manipulate those who are disenfranchised or in need, what kind of witness will be received? What kind of view would that give to those on the receiving end of all the injustice? Now, to be clear, the call of the Lord God on his people through Amos was not for revolution, that the poor and helpless would rise up against the rich and powerful and overwhelm and overtake them. The call of the Lord for his people was for conversion, that they would continue to place their hope and trust in the Lord and that they would order their lives and treat others according to the commands and promises of our Lord and his word. Thanks be to God that when justice turns into injustice and overwhelms and disillusions, that the Lord forgives and upholds us. Recall Jesus before Pontius Pilate. You remember that scene? This was after he had celebrated the Passover with his disciples in the upper room the night before. He had washed his disciples' feet. That was part of our gospel reading this morning. He had been betrayed by Judas, arrested after prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and beaten and hit and struck along the way to his false mock trials the following morning. Having not really slept, having been beaten, having been mocked, having been ridiculed, and having been abandoned by his disciples, he now finds himself before the governor of that area, Pontius Pilate, who was supposed to be the upholder of justice and righteousness in that region. And Pilate's trying to make sense of this. Why are they bringing this man before me? He's obviously done nothing wrong. And yet the Jewish religious leadership is bent on getting this guy crucified. How can this be? Why can this be? So he takes Jesus aside privately and he asks them, where do you come from? And Jesus doesn't answer. He asks him another question. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have power to either free you or crucify you? And Jesus answers him then, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over is guilty of a greater sin. Despite all the accusations, despite all the hostility, despite the betrayal and the mistreatment, Jesus withstands the injustice of it all so that he could fulfill his mission of seeking and saving the lost and going to the cross for your sins and for my sins and for all the times when we participate in injustice. 
he does that. So that way, he could fulfill all righteousness, forgive our sins, and usher in a new era of the reign and rule of God, where those in need and those without power are recognized, restored, and received into the kingdom of God. And friends, Jesus does the same for you and for me. When we have been less than fair with others, when we have withheld our generosity, when we've been more harsh than is necessary, God sees us, he understands, he loves us, and he forgives us, all because of his son, Jesus. When we have diminished or downsized the role of God in our lives, and our worship of him to make room for our ability to make more money, when we've overindulged in our lifestyles, or when we've exerted our power and authority and influence over others in unjust ways, the God who does not forget chooses to forgive as we repent of our sins and turn to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Friends, thanks be to God for his goodness, grace, and mercy in our lives. Thanks be to God for his son, who endured the injustice of it all to place you and position you as one who is righteous and redeemed before the throne of God. Thanks be to God for giving us a second chance at becoming the people of God that he intended us to be. Humble, gentle, generous, giving, serving, considering others better than ourselves and finding ways not only to receive the blessings of Jesus Christ that he's given to us, but finding ways to share those blessings with others, especially those in need. So friends, the next time you're at a football game or watching a football game or coaching a football game and that official throws the flag, you're gonna hear the cheers, you're gonna hear the jeers and you're going to feel that sense of injustice perhaps. Remember this message and remember the God who wants you to be just in your life and how you treat other people. And remember your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who endured the injustice of it all so that you and I could be forgiven and free and serve others with great joy. May God grant it to you for Jesus Christ's sake and all God's people said, amen. amen.